grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. On the northern boundary of Tucson, you will find the Santa Catalina Mountains that have a lot to offer us who live here in Tucson. You can drive through the Sky Islands and visit both Mexico and Canada in a single day. You have Summer Haven with its cool summer getaways, and if you really want snow in winter, you can go there and you can play in it to your heart's delight. And don't forget about the natural beauty that those mountains give to us. Views of the desert floor where we live, the rugged canyons and the tree-studded mountaintops that are all throughout that entire mountain range. Those mountains are quite magnificent. And yet out of that entire mountain range, out of everything they have to offer, there is one thing that is the most magnificent of all. And no, it's not the cookie cabin that you may think. Rather, it's the highest mountain in that range, the mountain called Mount Lemon. Measuring just over 9,000 feet, it towers over everything else that is in that range, from which you can get views going all the way out. I don't know how many miles, but you can go a long way out and see things that you certainly can't see from the, from the floor down here. And it's also there. It is the site of one of U of A's observatories to see what's going on up above. And if you have a reliable car, you can get up there in easily less than two hours. Out of all those mountains, Mount Lemmon is the most magnificent because of all that it alone can give you. And in verses from Isaiah, we hear about another magnificent mountain, a mountain called the mountain of the Lord. But his magnificence does not come from its elevation or from its natural beauty or the amenities and services that you can find on it. Its magnificence comes from the Lord himself and its connection to the Lord. As we hear Isaiah's words this morning depicting the last day when our Christ, our King, comes back a second and final time, we see that role the mountain has as the home as the place where his reign is set up and a reign that brings complete peace for all the world. And specifically in this season of Advent, as we focus on Christ's coming, we see how his coming on the last day prepares us to welcome him anew, to join with countless Christians and saying, come Lord Jesus as our King, as we ourselves come to him in his word today. We New Testament Christians can sometimes find it difficult to fully understand what's meant by the mountain of the Lord. Because in Isaiah's Old Testament day, it was one and the same. It was physically located to be Mount Zion, where the temple was, and around which the Jewish religious life and many, time, many parts of their entire life as a nation centered around. And it was this physical mount that God had attached his glory to, his glory among the nations, his visible dwelling with people from which he reigned. And what happened to that mount was his visible sign to the whole world. Since Jesus has died for our sins and gone back to heaven, God no longer attaches his glory to one single people group or to a specific geographical location. Rather, it's to all Christians, wherever they are, and through the word that they have as well. 
Yet this term, mountain of the Lord, is not just thrown into the history books. Rather, we see it being used as a symbol, showing where this is where God reigns. This is where he dwells, and the glory he has among the nations with that specific mountain. And we remember that Jesus is even now reigning as king at God's right hand, and certainly is up in heaven doing that very thing. We talk about mountain of the Lord, though, because when Isaiah depicts what's happening on that last day when Jesus comes back, he uses that Old Testament framework of this mountain to depict what is going to happen so we can fully see who this king is. Remember, the mountain of the Lord is magnificent because it's connection to the Lord. And when Christ comes back one final time, it'll be on that mountain where he has his dwelling set up to make it the most prominent mountain out of all others. Hence why it is rising above every other mountain in the world. It is in the temple of the people of Jacob, that is the people of God, that he dwells and to which all people are streaming to him so they come before their Lord and be instructed by him. Now, I want you to picture yourself within Isaiah's prophetic vision. Before you is this magnificent mountain towering up to the sky, and seated up top is the King of kings and Lord of lords himself. Beside you are people streaming up it, of every race, of every age, to come before the Lord, be instructed by him. Are you climbing the mountain alongside them? Maybe you're hesitant to climb that mountain, not because of how high it is, but because of who is on top of it. Hesitant because perhaps you don't want to hear what the Lord has to instruct. You've heard it all already, or you've heard enough, and you don't want to hear more. Or you find comfort in playing that ignorance card of, well, I didn't know better. Because I didn't want to know better. Maybe you're hesitant to climb that mountain because you don't want to be singled out by someone with so much authority and power. We know for ourselves that if someone in a position of power knows you by name or has their attention on you, it's probably not for a good reason. We know all the wrongs that we have done against our Lord above. And to come before him to risk being exposed to what we have done, well, we would much rather stay on the bottom amidst all the people and hopefully to blend into the flock. Or perhaps we're hesitant to climb that mountain to come before our Lord because of how insignificant we would feel before him. When you see somebody who is excelling with their God-given and practice-made perfect skills. How do you often feel? Whether it's on the athletic competition field, on the field, or in music, or just someone excelling what they're doing, I usually have a combination of two feelings. The first one just being a sense of awe. Someone who can do something that I never could, who is just like me, a regular human. But then I also feel rather insignificant because I can't even do half of what they're doing. Now imagine us before the Lord himself. How small, how insignificant, how worthless would you feel before him? Why would you want to feel that way when you could just 
stay away. And so we see how hesitant we are to come before him. Because we know there's something wrong, there's something missing, missing within us, and it's not right. Yet, as we look at our Lord, when he comes again as the king, we do so through the lens of his first coming as our Savior. In our gospel, we heard how Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem on a baby donkey to fulfill the prophet the, uh, fulfill the prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Just five days later, Jesus would trade in those shouts of Hosanna to the shouts of crucify him. And the people that once laid out their palm branches and outer clothing would instead give to him their dank and dark sins. With an eyesight of that temple that had once been magnificent. It's the connection to the Lord as the site of where all the sacrifices for sins that happened for hundreds of years would be the one sacrifice to end them all. When Jesus died on that cross for you and for me. The temple mount that had once been magnificent because that's where religious life was centered would now be magnificent for a different reason. Because it was at the foothills of that mount that Christ our King became Christ our Savior. And you see, it is that identification of Jesus as our Savior and as our King that changes everything, that gets rid of those reasons that had us remaining at the bottom of the mountain. Because Jesus, he makes us significant. As he died on that cross, he did it personally for you and for me. Not for some other sinner out there, but he had you in mind. And if he was willing to die for you, you better believe that you are worth something to him. Jesus, he, he singles us out in a good way. He takes his power and glory as the king himself with the forgiveness and salvation he has as our savior and singles you out and says, this is yours. My dear child, and yours alone, he instills in us a desire so that we crave to receive the Lord's instruction. What we're hearing today is just one small little bit of what all your Savior and King has done and said for you to know. And what else he has to share? Oh, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to hear. With those reasons taken away from remaining at the bottom of the mountain, we therefore look up above and see our Savior and King, and we come to him alongside those streams of people who are also going to him. But you know what? You don't need to wait until the last day to come to your Savior and King. You can do so today. When you come to the means that he uses to instruct us, his word and his law, as we also call today as the Bible, to find those places where learned people teach what God's word has to say, where it is front and center, surrounded by eager classmates to discuss it, to apply it to their lives, like we have here at Grace and our sister churches across the world. To open the Bible yourself, whether it's at home or on your phone, so you can come to your pastor with those, those questions that only a pastor can answer, and we love to answer. To remember that the one who's instructing you 
is not your king who is having you cower in fear, but your Savior who desires to have you know everything he has done for you as your Savior, as your king, who reigns for you on the mountain of the Lord to this day. And it's on that mountain of the Lord that not only does he instruct all uh, many peoples, but he's also busy at work too. He's judging and mediating between many peoples. We'll talk more about the idea of Jesus as judge next week, so I'm not going to talk about that now. But what comes from his action of judging and mediating is what I will talk about, that is his reign of complete peace. We hear Isaiah beautifully describe what that peace is going to be like when the weapons of wars are turned into tools of peace, like swords and spears being turned, being hammered into plowshares and blade for trimming vines. Nation will no longer raise a sword against another nation. It's not because there's one superpower that's lording it over everybody, scaring everybody to submission. No. War will simply cease. And people will forget its deadly ways. There's a statue in New York City, specifically in the North Garden of the United Nations International Headquarters. And the statue is of a man who is holding a hammer as he shapes a sword into a plowshare. Across the road, inscribed on the wall, is this verse from Isaiah describing what he is doing and where the inspiration of the statue came from. And it's this statue and this inscription that embody one of the main things what the UN is about, that is to promote peace in our world, to complete peace. And yet we know how impossible task that is for any group, even a group of united nations working together to bring complete peace in this world. When you see that lack of peace, how frustrated do you get? When countries wage pointless wars and commit needless violence, when people suffer loss of life and limb as happening on a daily basis in Ukraine and throughout so many parts of the world, how angry do you get? Who do you blame for that? Is it selfish leaders in callous countries? Is it the failure of organizations like the UN or others? Do you blame God himself reigning on high? Sometimes people can ask, if God is as loving and powerful as the Bible says, then why doesn't he stop all war and needless death? Why doesn't he just have peace happen now? If he can do it, why wouldn't he? The question is designed to put God in the hot seat and implies that he is to blame for the problems that we have made. Now, there are ways to answer that question in a way that preserve God's love and power in keeping with the Bible. But regardless of how the answer usually go or can go, it probably does not get rid of your frustration. It doesn't silence that anger. It doesn't have you stop lifting that finger and to accuse God for our problems. And when you read verses like this from Isaiah of the complete peace that our Lord will bring when he comes back a second and final time, maybe that's extra strong for you to bear. 
Yet remember when Isaiah is talking about. This idea of complete peace is not promised for today. It's for the last day. When he comes back one final time and every eye sees Jesus for who he truly is. As such, we should not expect complete peace until that day finally arrives. And yet, as we wait for the sword to be eternally hammered into plowshares, we also have peace even now. The peace within ourselves. When our guilty consciences try to accuse us, and there's nothing to be accused of because we're forgiven. The sins are taken away by our Savior and King. The peace we have between us and God who looks down on us as his beloved children instead of his persistent enemies. Why, even the peace we have right now in our country that prayerfully will continue for a long time to come. But we also have the promise of peace that will come when our king comes back one final time. When the armories are emptied and the tool sheds are filled, when generals are out of a job and can't find work because there's no more need for them, when sin and its devastating effects will no longer mar our lives because we will have our king reigning on his throne before our very eyes. Before I mentioned how Jesus works in us that desire, so we want to be instructed by his words, to hear what all he's going to do, what he has done as our savior and king. And the purpose of that instruction is so that we can live for our Lord and everything we think, say, and do. Or as Isaiah says it here, that we may walk in his paths, to walk in the light of the Lord. This may go without saying, but to remain in that light means that we have to remain in God's word. So that we know what his paths are and which ones are illuminated by his light. I know as well as you do how hard it is to continue to make time for our God in our ever-busy lives, especially as we prepare for this upcoming Advent season with Christmas, what, just a little, a little under a month away, uh, if you're going by the calendar count. Life is going to get rather busy for us. And yet there's nothing more important than to remain in God's Word. Not so that we can live for Him, so we can clearly see the one who we are coming to, Jesus, our King, and Jesus, our Savior. In this Advent season, we're focusing on Christ's coming. And it's because of his first coming as our Savior, we can look forward to his second coming as our King. With the words of Isaiah's prophetic vision, we know what to expect when he comes back one final time that he will set up shop on the mountain of the Lord and it will be a prominent place that every eye will see streams of people coming to him so they may be instructed and to live for him and finally complete peace for the best of reasons. As we wait for that coming to finally occur, we have peace that now guards our heart that comes from above. And it's with this peace that we can come to our Savior and King in his word and to live for him with joy and thanks in our heart as we join with countless Christians as we say, come Lord Jesus as our Savior and as our King. Amen.
and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.